0: You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Before Kim became the president and the chief operating officer of genomic health, she worked for the leading biotechnology company in the United States and a company that just won fortunes coveted best company to work for award, and that is Genentech. She had a number of sales and marketing roles with Genentech before starting up with Genomic Health, and she took all of that expertise and experience and has used it to build a great business that is one of the best venture-backed startups to work for in the world, Genomic Health. You're going to learn more about her latest venture and lessons that Kim has learned along the way. Kim is also an entrepreneur who has spoken with us before here at ETL, and we're delighted to have her back. Kim, welcome to Stanford and to the uh, Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Program. Come on up. Well, thank you for the nice introduction. I have to say on a beautiful summer day uh, that we're having here in the middle of winter, I'm um, honored that you all uh, came in to watch me or hear me speak, because I don't think I would have done that. But uh, So I, I'm impressed with the int- attendance here. I will try to make it worth your while, and I would really love uh, questions uh, at the end. So please feel free to... Ask anything about uh, my own uh, personal history, career, um, the Genentech experience, or the genomic health experience, which I'll focus on mostly today and share with you. I thought I'd talk a little bit about the company, um, specifically introduce you to our product so you can see some of the challenges that we've dealt with in bringing Genomic Health's product to the market and also the company uh, uh, to, the, to the public market, um, and then um, talk a little bit about the future where we see things headed in, in our field because it, in fact, is a, a very new area. Uh, Tom mentioned um, the experience that I had at Genentech. I was at Genentech for 15 years. Um, I had the great fortune and opportunity to launch, I think, probably 14 different products there, uh, including the uh, last group of products which we launched were the oncology products. So those were the first monoclonal antibodies to really be successful in the marketplace. And launching uh, those products, specifically Herceptin, uh, a new issue arose, and that issue was when we were doing the development of Herceptin, which is a drug for the treatment of breast cancer, what we realized is that we were having a hard time enrolling clinical trials because we had to identify the women that overexpressed HER2 in order to get patients in the trial that could possibly benefit from Perceptin and allow us to meet our endpoints. So it became pretty clear at that point in time that diagnostics were gonna be pretty important to the future of targeted therapies within the pharmaceutical and biotech field. And when I looked at our pipeline at Genentech and saw so many other uh, targeted therapies in the pipeline, It was an obvious question, how are these drugs going to then get to the marketplace if we don't have really good diagnostics to sort out the patients who potentially can benefit from the drugs? So as the menu of targeted therapies continues to grow, it's terrific, especially in cancer. But if we can't identify identify patients that will benefit, then we're really not serving the patients well. So that a bit was the impetus for my interest in genomic health, and I can share some of the, the stories from my colleagues here in just a minute. So when we say, you know, we're looking at a new era in individualized cancer care, what we do know today uh, is that the the costs of cancer uh, care are skyrocketing, and some of it is because of these new targeted therapies that are in the marketplace that can cost anywhere from 15 to 40 and, and upwards thousands of dollars a year per patient. On top of that, what also started happening at the same time is we began to understand more of the genome. So as the genome was sequenced and we had all of this data, um, what we were also seeing is that we really weren't turning that data into information for patients to make treatment decisions, or for physicians to to use in helping patients make treatment decisions. So we had sequenced the genome; we knew there was anywhere between 25 and 30,000 genes. But the next question was, and what are we going to do with this data to make it information and make it valuable and drive it into clinical practice so that it becomes, you know, real life usable for patients today that are making treatment decisions for cancer. The, the last piece of the, the puzzle for us in the sense of can we make this happen was will the marketplace give the same value to a diagnostic product as they currently do to a therapeutic product? So as we talked about what we wanted to do at Genomic Health, a lot of the feedback we got was, yeah, that's great, but diagnostics are you know a, a really low-margin business, and if you're going to do the type of work that you are talking about doing to bring – a high-complexity test like the one Genomic Health currently has in the market to the market, um, then you're never going to be able to get the value-based pricing that you will need to continue your business. So that was a challenge for us in the very beginning. How would payers reimburse for a $3,500 diagnostic test to help a cancer patient decide whether they needed chemotherapy or whether or not their tumor was going to be aggressive. And many people felt, no, that just isn't common, that's not what's done. Diagnostics tests, as you've seen them for blood work, whatever, you're talking 35, 50, 75, a couple hundred dollars is really where they are. So we knew going into this that the, we had to change the paradigm and how diagnostics were looked at because if we couldn't get to a place where diagnostics would be valued like therapeutics, or diagnostics where it wouldn't be reasonable to assume you could get a therapeutic-like margin on a diagnostic product, then we would have trouble launching our first product, but even more trouble realizing what was in our pipeline or demonstrating to the world that we could, we could bring future products out. So that is the, the backdrop for some of the conversations that we had prior to um, starting Genomic Health. Now, I've been with Genomic Health for about four, exactly four years, just a little over four years, Um, The company was founded about a year before I joined um, by a gentleman and uh, a couple of his colleagues, Randy Scott. Um, Randy was formerly the CEO of Insight. Uh, Randy was on the information side of the business. So I mentioned this whole sequencing of the genome. He was a very integral part of that whole project taking place. Randy got really frustrated because, again, all of this data wasn't information. Had a friend, in fact, that was diagnosed with colon cancer. And as he tried to help her through her treatment decisions, he became very frustrated with, how can you look at this patient and say, we really don't know what to tell you except try everything and the kitchen sink. So knowing that we could sequence this person's genome, yet we couldn't tell her anything other than we can just treat you like everybody else um, with this disease, he found to be very frustrating, and it really incented him to say, we've gotta be able to do better, and we've gotta be able to take the, the, the genome information and help patients uh, with their treatment decisions. He then contacted Joff Baker at, uh, at Genentech, and Joff at that time was uh, heading up research and discovery at Genentech. Joff had worked a lot on the oncology pipeline at Genentech, and Randy talked to Joff about, hey, I've got this idea. Um, I'm thinking if we could get RNA out of paraffin block, um, we could determine by using data from 20 years ago whether we could put a signature together for a cancer patient to help them make a treatment decision. Well, Joff at the time said, you know, it it sounds intriguing, and I think it's a great idea, but let me go ask a colleague of mine who happened to be Steve Schack, who is the head uh, of the development group at Genentech and the person responsible for bringing uh, Herceptin through the FDA. Um, He went to Steve and said, hey, I just got a call from a former colleague of mine has this idea, what do you think? And Steve said, you know, given what we just went through with Herceptin, this has to happen. We've got to be able to figure this out because if we don't, we can't launch all of the other targeted therapeutics, um, not just in Genentech's pipeline, but in any other uh, biotech or pharma company. So um, Steve and Joff joined a- Randy, and they uh, literally, as you probably heard many uh, startup stories, I think in a pool house with some um, cold Italian food and probably a bad bottle of red wine, knowing those guys, um, sat and talked about, you know, could this actually be done? They then spent the next year uh, working on getting RNA out of wax. So, anytime somebody gets a tumor biopsy done, anytime you ever have a biopsy for anything, that biopsy goes in a wax block and it sits somewhere in a hospital. Um, wherever that procedure had taken place. And what we knew is if we had those samples and we had the clinical data following those samples, following those patients for a 10-year period, we could go back and get the RNA out of those blocks. We wouldn't have to wait 10 years to see if the patients recurred or died or whatever. We'd be able to know because we're we're 10 years later already. So the question at the time was would the technology allow you to get the RNA out of the paraffin block in a manner that you could validate it in clinical trials and it would be useful, um, you know, for patients. And so that was the thing that they spent a year on, was getting this RNA out of paraffin block and seeing whether they could get an expression out of it um, to build these panels that we're looking at today. Well, clearly they were successful in doing that. And when, that, when they realized they were successful doing that and said, okay, now where are we going to go? What kind of business do we want to build with it? That's when I got the phone call and... I was at the time, um, you know, of course, very happy at, uh, at Genentech. And, and I don't know, maybe I should be concerned that they got the number one company to work for after I left and not why I was there. But I, I, I hope that didn't have anything to do with it. And a well deserved award for them. It's a, a terrific company. Um, at the time, you know, my feeling was, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing. I love launching drugs. Had done it for 15 years at Genentech and, and another company prior to that. Um, but I was really intrigued with the idea that. The diagnostics and molecular diagnostics to me represented the future of healthcare in the, in, to the extent that we aren't going to be able to get these drugs launched if we don't have it. And in some ways, it uh, reminded me of when I was in pharma and made the decision to go to, to biotech. That was my decision to go to Genentech. And I remember back then people would say, Oh, that, that biotech stuff is Star Wars. Are you sure you want to do that? It's a big risk. And I thought, you know, why not? It, you know, it, it certainly represented, you know, uh, to me, again, a future uh, for medicine. Um, never regretted the decision to do it. And that's kind of the way I felt about genomic health when, um, and when I was looking at the decision to leave Genentech was, it, do I think this is really the next frontier? Would it be something really exciting to work on? Because I always said to people, I would have never left Genentech to launch drugs anywhere else because um, there wasn't, there's no pipeline comparable and there's no you know research and development group comparable. So um, hence the decision to come and join this group um, at genomic health and from that point forward, what we've been doing is putting together the pieces of how do we now commercialize something that's very different than anything else before it in this space of diagnostics, in particular molecular, molecular diagnostics. I'm um, Adding to our team, we brought a CFO in about a year ago, and we brought Brad Cole in from Guidance, so he has a, a, another piece of experience. And I'm taking some time to talk about the team, and I will end talking about people, too, because it's one point that I would really hammer home to all of you. I believe that you can take really great ideas nowhere if you don't get the right people to help you do it. And when people ask me, what do you think the strength of genomic health is, we didn't invent the technology that we're using. We are using the technology in a way that nobody else has used it. Um, But I think what we did probably better than most companies or what's really making us successful today is we took the time to go out and what I would say is really really um, recruit an all-star team. So we went to very diverse groups and companies across our industry and brought people in that were really A players in what they did. And what's nice about the organization is, like an all-star team, everybody knows their position. They play it well, they cover for each other if they need to, but it's very clear what everybody brings to the table and what people focus on. And I can especially say that with this executive team because if you had us all in a room together, we're all very, very different. Um, but the other point I'll make is, as different as we are, the thing that I think keeps us very focused on our mission is that we share a passion to help patients with cancer. We are absolutely committed and driven by our mission at Genomic Health, which is to help cancer patients. Um, and and we really, you know, really all feel like we want to make a difference, and we know what role we're there to play. So. I think the other part that's important is when you can share the values and passion with your colleagues, it sure makes making decisions easy uh, in an organization. When we hit roadblocks um, or uh, speed bumps when we're trying to decide something, I can tell you the question that's always asked in our company is what's best for the patient? So in this decision, what would, what would be best for the patient? And it, it always helps us get, uh, move ourselves forward. So. Um, So to cancer, one of the things that's easy for me to talk about our business is I don't have to ask people if they're familiar with cancer. I, I, I can't imagine a hand wouldn't go up in this room if I asked you if you or a loved one or a friend or a family member ever had to experience cancer, the decision for cancer treatment, or if you knew somebody that had been on chemotherapy. We all do. And it's unfortunate that we all do, but I think the fortunate side of it is all of the research and work going on in this area, we are making some progress. And my personal belief is that we are going to see advances in this next decade like no other decade before. I think that you know, if you talk to people that are experts in the field, they probably would tell you they're disappointed with some of the advances over the last couple of decades. But I really believe based on what we're doing and what's going on in the development of targeted therapies, that we're really onto something that's gonna make a significant difference. Um, so the number one thing that happens when somebody gets diagnosed with cancer, I mean, you hear the C word and you're just, you know, I, you know you're just devastated by that. It's a very emotional time. And the first thing that, you know, patients will say is, am I gonna need chemotherapy? Um, and then are there different drugs? What drugs would I go to for my therapy? And what we realize is that physicians need more accurate clinical predictors. Right now, and I don't think many people probably do know this, if you're talking about early stage breast cancer, and that's probably 150,000 or so patients a year diagnosed stage 1 and stage 2 breast cancer, if you're told you have early stage breast cancer, about 90% of those patients or more will be offered chemotherapy, because in general, they'll be told that about 15% of women will recur with the disease in a 10-year period. What We don't tell patients, and it's just a fact that's out there, is for every 100 patients that you'll treat with chemotherapy, four will benefit. So, you know, a 100 women get this toxic therapy, of which will benefit four. The problem is we don't know who the four are. So if you're the patient and you're scared and you want to take every possible measure you can to make this disease go away, you'll say to your physician, if I have a, you know, 4%, 10% 4%, 10% chance, whatever, I want to take chemotherapy. And I certainly wouldn't blame them. So what our mission was, let, can we do something where we can figure out who the four are? Who are the four that are most likely to benefit so we can spare others, you know, the, the, uh, the, the treatment that is so de- can be so devastating? The other thing is that it goes both ways. You know, misclassifying patients, if you look at from, a, from the payer standpoint, so knowing that we were going to have a battle with payers for reimbursement, Why would they want to do this? Why would they want to pay for a $3,500 diagnostic? Well, if you're not treating the right patients with chemotherapy, um, you're costing the system a lot of money with all of the, the supportive care that goes along with chemo. You're also missing patients that probably do need chemo and will recur. Now, the recurrence of cancer is a very expensive thing to treat because now you're into a whole different later stage disease, which can cost, you know, an enormous amount of money. I mean, easily, um, you know, upwards of $50,000 or more. And today, with the price of the uh, targeted therapies, it would certainly be much higher than that. So, we think that we're we're leading the way in this whole field of, um, you know, molecular diagnostics. The first product that we have in the marketplace has about a potential of about $300 million. Um, which is, you know, for a diagnostic, um, a, a hugely successful a- a endeavor and one that we are continuing to work on, and I'll talk to you about some of the hurdles that we still have to go. Um, the product is in the market. We launched it in January of 2004. Um, and the clinical platform that we're using, I'll talk about a little bit later, we can, we can leverage into other cancers, and that will be the future of the business. And I talked enough about the management team, but I, I dwelled on it for the reason that I think that that's important. If any of you are ever thinking about taking a risk and starting something up on your own, um, the the number one thing you've gotta pay attention to are the people that you bring on your team. So um, consistent achievement and steady progress, we've had that for the last uh, five years. And The point of of this slide really is to look at, if you know much about drug development, you can spend 15 years to get a a therapy to the marketplace. Um, What we're doing, because we're able to use these archived tissue specimens, we're able to do retrospective studies with prospectively defined endpoints. And in doing that, we can actually get a diagnostic product to the marketplace in three years. So we're really cutting down the development cycle um, to get these products out because of the way that we're able to to do the studies. Um, And you can see here just some of the key milestones that we've uh, hit uh, in the last five years. Now, this is the product. I, I won't go into it in detail, but basically what we do is we give a patient a report, just like you'd get a lab report if you got a cholesterol test, and we give them a score. And in this particular, particular case, you'll see there's a recurrence score of 10. So that patient then can take that recurrence score and match it against a clinical trial population that we did in our validation studies to say if my recurrence score is 10, then my likelihood of recurrence is X, 7%, 5%. So, the, so that's where the, you, you see the report there on the side. Um, to date, we've been in the marketplace since January of 04. There's about 5 to 6,000 oncologists uh, in the marketplace that we're targeting. We have a very small sales force of 30 people, and already we've had about 2,000 oncologists utilize the assay, and most of them have utilized it more than once. So we've gotten some really great traction early on um, with about 5,000 tests ordered just through the third quarter of last year, and, of course, we'll be uh, announcing our fourth quarter uh, earnings and all uh, revenue uh, in the next, uh, next couple of weeks. Actually, next Monday, I think. So how did we do this? Um, This is emphasizing the validation piece of it. One of the things that's nice about the test, it's a 21-gene panel, and you see the family of genes there across the bottom. These are genes that oncologists would suspect would be involved in cancer, um, in, in the aggressiveness of cancer or not. So one of the things that we had in our favor is we weren't taking a panel out there with 21 genes that our customers would look at us and say, this doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me that ER or PR or that Grab7 or HER2 would be involved in the aggressiveness of breast cancer. So the nice thing is, is the biology of what we did fit. But now what's, what's complex about the test is it takes the 21 genes and it measures the expression levels either up or down as to the signature of every individual tumor to predict whether or not it's going to be a bad tumor or a good tumor. And that's where we get to the score in, in the report for the patient. So a very simple slide, but again one that is at the heart of what we're trying to do here. When we said, okay, now we're taking this very complex product out, it's a price tag of $3,460. Payers are going to be shocked by this. Oncologists are going to say, but wait a minute, I'm not sure I understand this retrospective, prospectively designed type trial. We knew we had a ton of education to do. So we have focused on these four blocks for five years. Um, And the first one was clinical validation. In the diagnostic business, you can launch a product from a CLIA certified laboratory. Um, With a lot of validation in clinical data or very little and there was a point in time where we had a conversation with our board of directors About boy should we launch now or should we wait to complete two or three more validation studies? And our feedback and our opinion was that the oncology community is very evidence-based and evidence-driven and We didn't feel as an organization that we would have credibility going to the marketplace in absence of really, really solid validation uh, data. And so we delayed our launch for a year so that we could get the validation studies done and that we could go to the marketplace with data that would would be compelling to oncologists. The second thing that we knew from uh, payer work, and I had spent a lot of time at Genentech working with the the payer and managed care groups, was that payers want uh, clinical evidence, but they also want it peer-reviewed and published. So to say, here's our study, it's done by... You know, Sloan Kettering and Genomic Health, or the NSABP and Genomic Health, which is a, a, a study group, um, isn't enough. They want to see it peer reviewed in the New England Journal or an oncology journal. So we knew that getting our, our data published was also going to be key. Finally, physician adoption, because payers will say, all right, your data's published, but physicians aren't using it. I'm not getting a lot of requests for it. There's no need for us right now to make a policy decision on it, so we're just going to wait and see if you can generate any demand. So the generation of the demand and the adoption with physicians was huge, and then finally we thought that that would eventually drive the reimbursement at the end. I would say today I'd probably knock that green bar at the end over a little bit more, but that's still going to be the biggest hurdle that we get over, is making sure that we can get access for all women for this test so that uh, uh, or, uh, insurance companies are going to reimburse for it. We've got right now, I'd say about 20% of the population covered, which you know, is a lot given where we are to date, but certainly not you know, as far as that we need to go. So that's where we spend a lot of our resource and a lot of time right now. So I'm not going to go through the data, but just to emphasize again, we went out there with data in over 2,600 patients, and we worked with collaborative study groups and investigators that are very well known in the oncology community, and that's also key. So when you do your research, whatever project you're interested in, it does matter who you do it with. Um, you know, it matters whether you're with some small community hospital in the middle of Iowa that nobody knows anything about and doesn't know the quality of their work versus being with a leading institution academic center such as Stanford or one of the major cooperative study groups in cancer, which are um, all of which we worked with. So going to the market with this level of data was, was hugely impressive to the oncologist and certainly got us out of the gates in good shape. We then, I mentioned publications, we got our, our lead validation study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, That was huge for us back at the end of 2004, and I can show you some data when you'll see the impact of that in just a minute. What we're waiting for now is our subsequent validation trials to be published, and so we believe that that will be a real um, high point, and it's a milestone for the company this year, and those have been submitted for publication, so we look forward to seeing them soon. Um, The other thing that I would mention that differentiates genomic health from other diagnostic companies for sure is that we are a fully integrated company in the sense that we, we decided to build our own sales force, our own reimbursement group, our own managed care team, and our own lab internally. So one option that we had, and I think all young companies go through this, is do you buy or do you build? So now you've got this technology working. You've got this 21-gene panel identified. You know you can predict likelihood of chemotherapy response Um, for cancer patients, should we package this and take it to one of the big lab companies, uh, LabCorp, a Quest, a Genzyme, and say, here now you do this and we'll just be a research engine to put more of these products out in other cancers and and, and also in breast cancer. We looked at that. We um, investigated it with all the major uh, players in our market space. And it was interesting because as much as it was tempting to do that, because building infrastructure around one product for a very small company with somewhat limited resources is a scary proposition. So you're hiring a lot of headcount that is going to be there. What if it took us three years to get the product to be successful and we had built all of the spend internally? But what happened is when we went out and we talked to potential partners – Nobody believed we could do what we could do or what we we said we wanted to do. Um, And it was a little bit disconcerting because I spent more time in meetings with people saying, well, you can't do this and you're never going to get that and people won't buy a retrospective trial and you're not going to get reimbursed for $3,500 for this and you're going to have to realize that the diagnostic space is different. And you need a huge sales force. So it was interesting for me because I took copious notes through all of those meetings. Some of them I thought, boy, maybe I'm starting to get a little depressed here. But in some, I guess, warped fashion, it kind of motivated me a little bit more. So I thought, well, look, these are all the right things to write down because these are the speed bumps we will, in fact, hit. And my background certainly wasn't in the diagnostic space, nor was anybody else on that team. So we had to constantly ask ourselves, are we being naive? I mean, do we really just not get it, or do we really think we can make this happen? And so we took all of that information, and we sat back down and said, you know, we're going to go for it. We're going to go for it in a small way. But we didn't feel like we could possibly be successful if we put the product in the hands of a partner that didn't believe in what we were trying to do, that didn't believe in that we could change the paradigm. I think we would have certainly, you know, risen to the expectations that they had and not made it. So we in turn built a small sales force. We started with eight people. We put them in major cancer centers, uh, territories that had you know, large populations and a lot of influence. We've been slowly building that. We have about 30 sales reps today, so we're still tight trading. We don't have a big sales force now. And then we also built the other departments inside. So we now have a very strong foundation um, of a totally integrated uh, commercial uh, infrastructure to not just work with uh, Oncotype DX, but future products in the pipeline. Um, so adoption, I mentioned to you, look at the New England Journal article there um, coming out in December of '04, and then if you look at the nine months following in 2005, um, the difference in physician users um, and in the tests that we build over that period of time. So when I talk to you about how clinical data can drive the day in evidence with oncology, there's a great example of, you know, knowing what you need when you launch something is hugely important, and certainly bringing on the right team of sales folks um, to do this. Now, another thing that we did that is very not traditional um, of of the diagnostics field is we brought reps on that had 10, 15, 20-plus years of experience selling biotech oncology products. We didn't bring people in from the laboratory side necessarily. We went after a rep that we knew could build relationships with oncologists that could handle a highly technical and clinical cell um, and understood the uh, the world of oncology, very different than what a lab company typically does. So that was a risk that we took early on. So we followed really a a drug type launch a biotech product-type launch to launch a diagnostic, which is unusual in the space. And sometimes I had to ask myself, if I'm, are we just doing this because it's what I know? That's how we launched Receptin. That's how we launched Rituxin. But when we really went out and did the market research, um, it was clear to me that oncologists were not going to be sold on this without that same kind of interaction um, uh, with their rep. Um, so now the big, the last hurdle that needs to, or the domino that needs to fall, is on reimbursement. We've made some great progress in this area. The mix that we expect for reimbursement is, is here in this pie chart. About 70% private pay, and, and the other big piece will be Medicare at 20%. Um, private payers we're doing reasonably well with. We've got some big plans now um, uh, uh, paying, and more coming on board as we as we speak. So we've done very well with the, the private pay community. Again, not though where we ultimately want to be. Most private payers. Um, the resistance at this point is not physician adoption because you saw the adoptions pretty, pretty uh, significant right now. It, they want to see the second and third published uh, papers that we have um, in for uh, publication right now. So they're waiting on additional published uh, data, um, which we hope to deliver soon. Um, Medicare, uh, we recently did get coverage from Medicare, which was an incredible um, uh, event for the organization. So interesting that Medicare would be the leader in in this area for us, and in, in being the first really large payer to adopt a, a coverage plan for Oncotype DX. But we're absolutely thrilled for patients that this has happened, and certainly we think we'll have some influence on other payers to you know to get on board and, and to cover the test. Um, as ultimately, we believe the usage of the test will save the healthcare system money because we'll get chemotherapy to the to, to the right patients. We'll be right sizing it. We also had a. Um, our denials, our Medicare denials overturned. I won't go into the detail of it, but learning the whole process through Medicare and what you go through through appeals, which we've been doing on behalf of patients, has been a very interesting experience and one that I've learned a great deal from. But once again, as a company, we said, do we want to put resources into fighting every single one of these claims for every single patient that gets this assay? And our answer was back to what's best for the patient. And what was best for the patient, if we were all as committed to this as I said we were earlier, was that we fight this for them. Because winning this for them means that we win this for the future for cancer patients, you know, in in, in every cancer type. So we do do that. For every single patient, we will work through three levels of appeals with their their insurance carrier, and we've been quite successful in getting denials overturned, and we'll continue to do that. Um, Here's an example of one of the things we learned from payers um, after we launched was they would say, okay, well, you've got the data. Physicians are using it. But I want to be convinced that it's really going to change that treatment decision. If that, if that patient gets a recurrence score back of 30, I want to know that they're going to get chemo. And if they get one back at 5, I want to believe that they're not. So we've started to do some studies now looking at the, the impact that the product has on changing treatment decisions. Very small study that was done here and talked about at the San Antonio meeting this past December. But, rec- but looking at this particular group of patients, it changed treatment decisions 25% of the time, which is significant um, uh, from the payer world. And this happened to be a practice, of phys- uh, a group practice of physicians that tends to not use chemotherapy very much. So if you, if you were in a practice that used a lot of chemotherapy, we would expect this number to be even, even a little bit higher. So again, a, a, a step for us to demonstrate that the product will make a difference and impact treatment decisions. Um, Just proving the business model, this past year was our year to say, can we prove this business model? And that's what we're taking into 2006. We've proven the science. Nobody's doubting anymore the work that we're doing and the technology that we're using. I think that that hurdle we have have clearly crossed. Proving the business model is, you know, are we going to continue to get the large payers like Medicare, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, Cigna to pay for this product, and then further um, this year, can we deliver on a pipeline to show people that this business has legs and we've got other places to go with it? So as these lines start to come together, we'll, we'll, we'll see that success taking place, and we are getting closer. Um, any company that you build or um, product that you think about, you have to always be thinking, thinking, okay, where do I take this now in the future? So we put Oncotype DX out there. What's the competition going to do? What's our next move? and how do we stay leaders uh, in this field? So what we've done is designed a platform that we can easily take into other cancers. So what we will do is look at um, other areas in breast cancer. So we've got more opportunity with the existing product. And then also looking at the breast cancer uh, market, there's other patients there too, the node positive patients that we'd like to take this product into. So we're doing work in that area. And then finally, um, you could imagine, there's a lot of other cancers out there that we haven't touched yet. So we've begun research in all of these Um, utilizing the same platform, um, looking at different marker sets and building different panels for these diseases. And we'll announce sometime this year which one of these programs we're gonna take officially into development. But there's a lot of exciting work being done uh, over there in Redwood City, not too far away. Um, So what is the competitive barrier? We think that the integrated approach that we have is, I I can't think, but maybe one, and I'm not sure I'd even say that 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 particular company is in in, in, in this league in terms of what we're doing, the research and development that we do on top of the clinical development, the, having the direct sales force in our own, our own commercial infrastructure, our own lab in Redwood City, which is a, 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 a very impressive uh, operation, and then the whole reimbursement support, we've got all the pieces together in one place. Um, that's not that common in the diagnostic world. Now, will other people come and build the same sort of model? I, I believe they will. I think they'll also find out how difficult it is. So you look at back starting out, we probably you know, raised $100 million before we got this product to the marketplace. Now, a lot of that we can leverage going forward for future products, but it's not an easy proposition. So it's a different way of developing diagnostics than what traditionally um, uh, companies have looked at. So I think that for somebody to get into this space, they're going to need to be um, clear on what they're gonna to have to invest to get to where we've gotten today and the amount of validation that customers will demand before they'll just move to any, any other product introduced. Um, just in summary here, you know, uh, we do think we're setting a new standard in individualized medicine and that's so exciting for us because we probably, you've all heard the buzzwords, you know, individualized medicine, personalized medicine, um, targeted medicine. We believe that this really is the first step towards bringing that whole approach to clinical practice. So we finally have a product where we can say to somebody, no, your tumor is not like your tumor. You've got a signature and you've got a signature and that signature matters in choosing a therapy that will be best for your particular disease. So I said I'd start with people and I'd end with people. Um, the other thing that I would never underestimate, and I, you know, I think over the years, people some would say, well, these are the softer things in management and in companies, but I believe it's it's the core of why we can do the work that we do. Um, we have an incredibly motivated uh, and driven team, and I would say genomic health is uh, really like a family. Most of the employees that we have, myself included. Um, You know, came to the company driven by family members or our own personal experiences with cancer. So it's just a wonderful feeling to be able to do what we do. And we spend a lot of time making sure we focus on our culture at Genomic Health. And it's an easy thing to overlook because you get busy and you're operating with limited resources and everybody has too much on their plate. But if you don't take time to stop and celebrate the, the small successes and the big ones, and you don't take time to remember why we're all there, Um, just enjoying what we're doing and focused on the patients. And I think you really miss an opportunity to really maximize the talent that you have. So, you know, and there are times we have to stop ourselves and say, wait a minute, you know, when is the last time we celebrated, you know, something? And it's just a a really, really fun place to work um, with just an an absolutely uh, incredible group of people. So I'll stop bragging about them, and I'll um, take some questions if you have some. how you estimated the market size, I guess, for the drug? Yeah, what we did um, is we went out and we took a look. In fact, uh, it's a good question because we, when we went to say, what cancer should we start in? So we knew that we had the technology working, and then the next question was, where do we go with it? Because you could imagine, you could go to immunology, cardiology, um, oncology. We, of course, had a bias towards oncology because of our experiences, but then we had to choose a cancer. And so what we did was some market research on what are the, what's the greatest unmet need um, in oncology today for uh, treatment decisions in cancer. And it was clearly came back this early-stage breast cancer population. And it's a very large population. So there's about 250,000 women diagnosed with uh, early sta- or breast cancer each year, about half of which fall into this category of don't know where they which way they should go. So a lot of it was driven by the market opportunity of the 250,000 patients and the 100,000 or so being um, in in this area of of people that we could help. Sure. Uh, How did you get access to the samples for your study? Um, This will be an interesting... uh, evolution, I think, for our whole field, because what we did is we went back to one of the big study groups called, it's NSABP. it's the National Surgical Adjuvant Breast and Bowel Project, and it was actually a group originally designed to work on colon cancer and moved into breast cancer. They had done the major big cooperative group studies over the years, so they were the group that did the study to demonstrate that women should go on tamoxifen if they were hormone receptor positive. So we knew that they had the repository of, of the samples, and they also had the clinical data because they followed these women out for 10 years. So we went to them and we told them about our idea, and we talked to them about using those blocks, those paraffin blocks that they had, and we had to make sure that they had uh, patient consent to do research on the blocks, and then we worked collaboratively with them to get the blocks and do the work that we were doing. And the reason I say it's gonna be interesting going forward is I can't imagine that these blocks have now become little blocks of gold, right? So these are blocks that have been sitting in these cabinets and in hospitals for years doing nothing, but you're usually mandated to keep them 10, 10 years, I think is a minimum, and probably most places keep them more. So now that people are aware that you can do this sort of work on blocks, everybody wants access to the blocks, but the blocks don't help you if you don't have the clinical data for the patient. So you've gotta know what's going on with the patient Um, the clinical course of of their treatment with it. So I think in the future, it's going to be – it would be a surprise to me if even pharmaceutical and biotech companies, when they start to do their clinical trials, I bet all will want to request tissue to store so that they can do uh, further research um, um, on those patients and with their their drugs going forward. The other thing that we think is going to be very helpful is – if you can imagine today, if you're doing a clinical trial in, let's say, early-stage breast cancer, and you've got a drug that you think is going to prevent disease recurrence, and you say, okay, we've got to recruit 500 patients for this trial, why would you want to recruit patients in the trial that had about 0% chance of recurring? You wouldn't, you wouldn't possibly want to do that, but it's the only option today. So we see another real value in our test being a, a product that pharmaceutical and biotech companies can use to select out patient populations to put in their clinical trials, and that helps everybody because we get the patients in the trials that have the most likely chance of having disease recurrence. Trials get done faster because they can hit endpoints faster, and we can probably do them with fewer patients. So that saves, that saves everybody um, money. I'm going to talk IPO and the that IPOs for biotech companies. So the IPO environment and what it's like right now for biotech companies. Well, last year, um, in, early in the year, we thought it was quite horrible. So we kind of waited along the way and we watched. And there was a window that started opening up. It looked like, I think, probably, I recall, maybe the time frame. And we decided that we'd go out in September, October-ish. And we were getting out right when the market was kind of coming back a little bit. So we probably picked a, a, not a great week to be on our roadshow. Um, it was a very interesting experience. I don't know if you've ever uh, any of you have ever heard about uh, how roadshows go, but you literally – we did, I think, 19 cities, five countries in three weeks or something, in 21 days. So you leave your home, and you just go where where bankers tell you to go, and you go in a building and up to the 30th floor, and you make a presentation, and you get back in the car, and you go to the next building, and you're – I didn't know where I was half the time, let alone you know countries, cities. Certainly not. So you really you go around for three weeks and you just present a, a, a presentation, not quite like just like this one, but similar. This is what we're doing, and this is why we think you should believe in our company, and this is why we think you should invest. And where we had the most. Um, questions was dead on. It was on reimbursement. You know, this all sounds great, and the work you're doing is really, really interesting, but are you ever going to get payers to pay for this? I mean, and if you don't, will there be enough of a patient pay market to make your business model feasible? So that was the biggest challenge that we had to overcome um, on our roadshow. We were very fortunate that we had a tremendous amount of interest. The other thing I will say is when you go and you talk to bankers, back to people, it's amazing how much the experience and the, uh, of your team matters to people investing. Um, because if you 've been somewhere, have a track record, have demonstrated success, it is a whole lot easier to have people believe in you um, than if you're, you know you 're in there with, without a resume or without a portfolio. So I do think the combined experience of the insight the guidance the uh, Genentech was certainly helpful for us in, in, in making investors feel comfortable that it was a management team they could rely on to deliver, but always a risk so I I likened the um, road trip after I returned, I said it was like an outward bound experience with no time for reflection. I had never been so tired in my life and didn't ever want to get on a plane again. In fact, the favorite uh, story of uh, our road show among the bankers and my colleagues was a a night that we were in a hotel uh, in Kansas City and a bat attacked me in my hotel room. So I have been given more stuffed bats, baseball bats, I've got a Batwoman bobblehead now so I'm a Bat girl. So yeah, it was it was a, it was definitely an experience. In the market today, you know, I don't you know, I don't I'm thinking of some companies that have recently gone out. I mean, I think there's several that have gotten out. In our time frame, I don't know that anybody was quite as fortunate as us as getting out in their range. Um, and then fortunately as of today, we're still trading above the range that we went out in, which was was, was very nice. Uh, So, are there is there special is it special equipment that we're using? Or yeah, no, we really aren't. So what we use is um, uh, we do RT PCR um, is the process by which we uh, the technology that we use. It's a technology available to anybody. uh, Roche makes it. Um, What we've done though is we've just used it differently. So we've stepped up what it's able to do. So for example, most people felt like if you could do get RNA out of paraffin block, you could only get a few genes using RT PCR. We're now up to doing, you know, a thousand genes in our studies um, uh, with this method, which is not commonly done. I'm not sure it's done anywhere else. But genomic health. Other questions? So that protects your IP, I guess, in this case. Yeah, you know. IP is a uh, – let me start with what our, our philosophy is on that. So when we went into this, we said, you know, our goal would be not to block other people from the space, but to make sure that we always had freedom to operate. So we've approached IP from not a standpoint of we don't any, want anybody else to get into the space because we think there's a ton of opportunity here, and this has a potential of being, you know, easily, you know, billion dollars uh, plus a market space. Um, is really more make sure we have freedom to operate along the way. So what we do, what we have patented, and we have several patents filed, is more around our process, how we are using the technology, the algorithm or the calculation that's in our our 21 gene panel, that's been patented, the genes relations to one another, we do some patenting, but you can't patent a gene in, in the way that we could just take our 21 genes and say nobody else can use those. So what we've done is built strategies around Always freedom to operate, and also strategies around if we believe somebody else has IP on a gene that we haven't invent around a way to use another gene in that pathway that we can still reach our goal in getting our panel together. But that is an important thing in this field because I think there's a lot that you know is unfolding regarding IP in this in the whole space of, of, of genomic or uh, molecular molecular diagnostics. other platforms besides rt like microarrays? Um, we, we actually have, we consider all platforms. And when I say that we're looking at 1,000 genes, we're looking at 1,000 genes in our research studies, not anticipating that the final product would ever have you know 1,000 genes in it. So if I go back to what we did in the breast cancer, we, u- we used uh, microarrays, we used RT-PCR, we, we searched the literature. And we came up with a, a group of 250 genes that we thought were bad or good actors in breast cancer. And then we took the 250 down to 50 and then we took it again down to 16 and then ended up at the 21 level with breast cancer. So for the other cancers, what, we will do the same thing. We will look at all of the data out there for microarrays. Um, it's in the literature and we'll choose the genes that we think are most important and then we'll bring it down to a, a number um, where we think, again, what's the best thing for the patient? So with breast cancer, 21 got us where we needed to go. 30 didn't add more value, and 15, we didn't get what we wanted. So we did it that way. Now, one of the things with, um, with arrays is arrays do best on fresh frozen tissue. Um, now, there are companies working uh, with arrays and paraffin block now, but the most success that people get with the uh, microarrays is using fresh frozen tissue, which is not really a viable commercial uh, medium to use. So you can imagine just having to ship a paraffin block for a sample versus having to get fresh tissue at the time of surgery um, is, a, is, a, is a much more onerous uh, process. So we really don't want to go there. However, I can tell you if we thought it was a better approach, we would certainly head in that direction. But in terms of you know, reproducibility, uh, sensitivity, and specificity, RT-PCR is definitely considered the gold standard Uh, in this field, the only reason everybody doesn't use it is it used to, the the thought used to be if you did RT-PCR, you couldn't look at more than a few genes at a time. And that's what we've changed. What other kind of diseases can genomic expression be used for? Well, any disease where you have... um, Patients that respond and don't respond to certain therapies. So an obvious one would be uh, immunology, uh, would be a great one where there's targeted therapies. Uh, cardiology, certainly there's work being done there. So take, for example, all the statins. Um, why is it that one patient will respond to Lipitor and somebody else will respond to something else? Is there a way going into it that you could find markers that would tell you who's likely to respond and who isn't? Um, so there's I think I that think the, you know, the field is just so wide open. There's so many places to go. Um, and it's very tempting because we get calls all the time about, boy, we've got this product for psoriasis. We, it only works in 10% of the population. If we, could, if we could target the 10%, we think we've identified some markers for it. Can genomic health work with us? Same thing in cardiology, same thing in immunology. And it's real tempting, especially for our scientists to say, ooh, let's, you know, let's take a look at that. And we have to always go back to know we have a core competency and a focus that right now is on cancer and we've really got to keep our efforts focused there. But I, that's why I say, I think the field is, there's just so much room um, for great work to be done here and why we really would welcome other, uh, other players in the space to be able to answer more of these questions because cancer is not the only disease that you know, uh, millions of, of, of people are struggling with every day. Um, you mentioned that companies are in the room, city. I was just wondering, why is it not somewhere where there are more biotech companies like say Philadelphia? Why Redwood City? That's a real easy answer to that. We all live here, love it, and didn't want to move. (laughs) But I will, will add to that. Um, that we do anticipate that we'll put a second site up at some place because if you look towards your risk factors, right, we've got one commercial laboratory sitting in a, an earthquake zone on top of it. We're probably on landfill in Redwood City, aren't we? Um, but, no, over time we will probably put a second site up um, somewhere just because it would be, I think, the, the, the right thing to do. Um, and certainly today, you know, our, we, we don't have a risk in not being able to supply the marketplace, but I think it just would make sense to, to put another site somewhere as we start to grow. Hi. Uh, how will health insurance be affected by molecular diagnostics? As in, if a person, a uh, patient is uh, diagnosed as being a recurring patient, uh, will it actually push up his premiums? And how do you prevent this kind of uh, discrimination? Or is there a chance that this can happen? Discrimination with the information? Yeah, uh, yeah always a, always a, a debate. So we don't think so any more with this than any other diagnostic test in terms of it. But, but this whole. Uh, field of, you know, genetic discrimination by, you know, does a payer have access to the recurrent score? Now, we don't ever send recurrent scores to payers unless they're asked for, and then we always get the patient's consent to deliver that recurrent score. So I would say today, this product doesn't stand in any greater um, jeopardy for a patient than any other diagnostic test, but I do think those are things over time that are going to be coming into the, uh, you know, forefront that we, along with other companies, will need to deal with. question about uh, global markets and thoughts of, from your perspective about where else in the world you might go besides right. America. Well, already we are in a few other countries. We've taken an approach um, outside of the U.S., by not transferring our technology anywhere, and there's all kinds of regulatory reasons why we wouldn't do that. But what we've done for other countries to date is we accept samples from a lot of countries, um, and the only country that we've actually set up a formal relationship with whereby we have a distributor in that country supplying their market is Israel. And that was a a specific uh, distributor over there that came to us and has a, a real handle on the market there and is the main distributor throughout the country. And we're very pleased with uh, the number of uh, patients in Israel that are uh, getting the benefit of the assay. So that's the one formal relationship that we have. Other countries were looking to set up similar relationships, but we, as we did the research on what it would take to go outside the United States, there's not, there are not, there's not like a single central reference laboratory. The diagnostic market um, outside of the U.S. is very fragmented. And so to go country by country when we didn't have the hurdles or the dominoes over here in our country, we said, you know, we're going to hold off on doing that and focus on getting the reimbursement issues uh, in the United States figured out. And I think it was the right thing to do because I think we're well on our way to, to, to making that happen now.